Hello, folks. I gotta be up front. Today's episode is a bit of a weird one. This was actually supposed to be part of last week's episode, and then the tangents took over. As I dug deeper into the sources for the Jewish perspective on the world that produced our Uchmer states, I came to realize that this angle was one that really needed to be explored, and it needed its own episode. A super long episode. Uh, this episode is super long and super gruesome, to be frank. The intro to this episode is, I think, the longest I've ever done, almost half an hour. It's almost the entirety of a contemporary account of the persecutions of Rhineland Jews. I tried to pare it down, but I really couldn't. It's a hellish account that humanizes medieval life in a way that you just can't ignore. But like I said, Gorgalore today. If you're not up for mass murder and parents killing their own children, you're gonna need to sit this one out. Uh, the old ultraviolence is a big part of today's episode. Now, the actual events that happened in the Rhineland could honestly be covered in about five minutes. So why is this episode so long? Well, I hear you asking. Well, because there's a lot here to unpack. The second half of this episode is gonna focus on what these events actually meant primarily from the perspective of the Jewish communities of the Rhineland. We'll be getting into the memory of these events and how they can tell us a lot about the society our first crusaders came from. We'll be spending plenty of time with these folks and they will be the migrants that found the Utremer states, so we need to understand them as best we can. A good deal of the history of the Utremer hinges on relationships with the capital O, Other. In exploring the violence that was done against minority communities in Western Europe and their response to this violence, we can gain a better understanding of how this is going to work once the Uchmer states are founded, with lots more minority groups. Anyway, without further ado, here we go. I shall begin the narrative of past persecution. May the Lord protect us and all of Israel from future persecution. In the year 1028, after the destruction of the temple, this evil befell Israel. The noblemen and counts and the common people in the land of France united and decided to soar up like an eagle, to wage war, and to clear a way to Jerusalem, the holy city, and to come to the tomb of the crucified one, a rotting corpse that cannot avail and cannot save, being of no worth or significance. The noblemen and common people placed an evil symbol on their garments, a vertical line over a horizontal one, and special hats on their heads. When these wanderers, these errant ones, started arriving in this land, the Rhineland, they sought money to buy bread. We gave it to them, applying to ourselves the verse, serve the king of Babylon and live. All this, however, did not avail us. Because of our sins, whenever the errant ones arrived at a city, the local burghers would harass us, for they were at one with them in their intention to destroy vine and root all along their way to Jerusalem. When the errant ones came, battalion after battalion, like the army of Sennacherib, some of the noblemen in this kingdom declared, Why do we sit? Let us join them. For every man who goes on this path and clears the way to the unholy grave of the crucified one will be fully qualified and ready for hell. The errant ones gathered the nobles and the commoners from all provinces until they were as numerous as the sands of the sea. They said to each other, Look now, we are going to a distant country to make war against mighty kings and are endangering our lives to conquer the kingdoms which do not believe in the crucified one. 
when actually it is the Jews who murdered and crucified him. They stirred up hatred against us in all quarters and declared that either we should accept their abominable faith or else they would annihilate us all, even babes and sucklings. A proclamation was issued. Whosoever kills a Jew will receive pardon for all his sins. There was a Count Dithmar there who said that he would not depart from this kingdom until he had slain a Jew. Only then would he proceed on his journey. When the holy community of Mainz learned of this, they decreed a fast day and cried out loudly to the Lord. Young and old alike fasted day and night, reciting prayers of lamentation in the morning and evening. Despite all of this, however, our God did not withhold his wrath from us. For the errant ones came with their insignia and banners before our homes. And upon seeing one of us, they would pursue and pierce them with their lances, till we became afraid even to step on the thresholds of our homes. On the eighth of Iyar, on the Sabbath, the measure of justice began to fall upon us. In the town of Speyer, the errant ones and the burghers first plotted against the holy men, the saints of the Most High, and they planned to seize all of them together in the synagogue. Told of this, the saints arose on Sabbath morning, prayed quickly, and departed from the synagogue. When the enemy saw that their plot to take them all captive together had been frustrated, they rose up against them and slew eleven of them. This was the beginning of the persecution, fulfilling the biblical verse, And at my sanctuary shall you begin. When Bishop John heard of this, he came with a large army and wholeheartedly aided the community, taking them indoors and rescuing them from the enemy. The bishop then took some of the burghers and cut off their hands, for he was a righteous man among the Gentiles, and the omnipresent one used him as a means for our benefit and rescue. Bishop John enabled the remnant of the community of Spire to take refuge in his fortified towns. The Lord had mercy upon them for the sake of his great name, and the bishop concealed them until the enemies of the name had passed. The Jews engaged in fasting, weeping, and lamentation, and began to despair greatly. For day after day, the errant ones and the Gentiles and Emiko, may his bones be ground to dust, and the common people, all gathered against them to capture and annihilate them. Bishop John saved them, for the Lord had moved him to keep them alive without taking a bribe. For it was the Lord's doing to grant us a vestige and a remnant by the bishop's hand. When the bad tidings reached Worms that some of the community of Spire had been murdered, the Jews of Worms cried out to the Lord and wept in great and bitter lamentation. They saw that the decree had been issued in heaven and that there was no escape and no recourse. The community then was divided into two groups. Some fled to the bishop and sought refuge in his castles. Others remained in their homes, for the burghers had given them false promises, which like broken reed staffs, cause harm and do no good. For the burghers were in league with the errant ones in their intention to wipe out our people's name and remnant. So they offered us false solace, do not fear them, for anyone who kills one of you, his life will be forfeit for yours. The Jews had nowhere to flee, as the Jewish community had entrusted all their money to their non-Jewish neighbors. It was for this very reason that their neighbors handed them over to the enemy. On the tenth day of Er, a Monday, they cunningly plotted against the Jews. They took a rotting corpse of theirs, which had been buried thirty days previously, and bore it into the city, saying, 
Look what the Jews have done to one of us. They took a Gentile, boiled him in water, and poured the water into our wells to poison us to death. When the errant ones and burghers heard this, they cried out. They all assembled, anyone capable of drawing and bearing a sword, big and small, and declared, Behold, the time has now come to avenge him who was nailed to the wood, whom their forefathers slew. Now let no remnant or vestige of them be allowed to escape, not even a babe or a suckling in the cradle. The enemy came and smote those who had remained at home, handsome lads, pretty and pleasant girls, old men and old women, all extended their necks in martyrdom. Manumitted servants and slaves were also slain in sanctification of the eternally awesome and sublime name of him who rules above and below, who was and will be, whose name is Lord of hosts, and who is crowned with the graces of the 72 names, he who created the Torah 974 generations before the creation of the world, and there were 26 generations between the creation and Moses, father of the prophets, through whom the Torah was given, the same Moses who wrote in this Torah, it is the Lord whom you have chosen today. It was for him and his Torah that they were slain like oxen and dragged through the marketplaces and streets like sheep to be slaughtered and lay naked in the streets, for the foe stripped them and left them naked. When the survivors saw their brethren lying naked and the chaste daughters of Israel naked, under this great duress they yielded to the foe. For the errant ones had said that they would not leave a single survivor. So some of the Jews said, Let us do their will for the time being, and then go and bury our brethren and also save our children from them. For the enemy had already seized the few remaining children, thinking that they perhaps would be gained for their erroneous faith. But the children did not turn away from their Creator, and their hearts did not stray after the Crucified One, but they clung to God on high. Those of the community who had remained within the bishop's chambers sent garments so that the dead might be clothed by those rescued, for the survivors were charitable people. The heads of the community remained there in the bishop's palace, and most of the community were spared initially. They sent words of comfort to the forced converts. Do not fear and do not take to heart what you have done. If the Blessed Holy One saves us from our enemies, then we shall be with you in death and in life. But do not turn away from the Lord. On the 23rd of Yar, the errant ones and the burghers said, Let us also take vengeance against those who have remained in the courtyard and chambers of the bishop. People assembled from all the surrounding villages, together with the errant ones and the burghers, and they besieged and fought against them. A great battle was fought between the two groups until they captured the chambers where the children of the sacred covenant were sheltered. When they saw that the war was on every side by decree of the king of kings, they justified heaven's judgment upon them, placed their trust in their creator, and offered true sacrifices, taking their children and wholeheartedly slaughtering them in witness to the oneness of the venerated and awesome name. There was a man there by the name of Meshulam, son of Isaac, and he called out in a great voice to his beloved wife, Mistress Zipporah, and to all those present, Hear me, adults and children! God gave me this son, my wife, Zipporah, bore him in her advanced age. His name is Isaac. I shall now offer him up as a sacrifice, as our father Abraham did his son Isaac. His wife Zipporah said to him, My lord, my lord, wait, do not yet move your hand toward the boy whom I have raised and brought up, whom I bore in my old age. Slaughter me first, and let me not see the death of the child. He replied, 
I shall not tarry even for a second. He who gave him to us shall take the boy as his share and place him in the bosom of our father Abraham. He bound Isaac, his son, and took the knife in his hand to slaughter him, reciting the blessing for ritual slaughter. The boy responded, Amen. And Meshulam slaughtered his son, Isaac. He took his shrieking wife, and together they left the room. The errant ones then slew them. Wilt thou restrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Yet with all this, his great wrath did not turn away from us. There was a lad there named Isaac, son of Daniel. They asked him, Do you wish to exchange your God for a disgusting idol? He replied, God forbid that I should deny him. In him I shall place my trust, and I shall even yield up my soul to him. They put a rope around his neck and dragged him through the entire city in the muddy streets to the house of their idolatry. There was still some life in his frame when they said to him, You can still be saved if you agree to change your religion. Having already been strangled, he could not utter a word from his mouth, so he gestured with his finger to say, Cut off my head, and they slit his throat. There was yet another youth there, in Vorms, by the name of Simha HaKohen, son of our master, Isaac HaKohen, whom they sought to contaminate with their putrid water. They said to him, Look, they have all been killed already and are lying naked. The youth cleverly answered, I will do all that you ask of me if you take me to the bishop. So they took him and brought him to the bishop's courtyard. The bishop's nephew was there too, and they began to invoke the name of their foul and disgusting scion, and then left him in the bishop's courtyard. The youth drew his knife, then gnashed his teeth like a lion worrying his prey. The nobleman, the bishop's kinsman. Then he dashed at him and plunged the knife into his belly, and the man fell dead. Turning from there, he stabbed yet another two until the knife broke in his hand. They fled in all directions, but when they saw that his knife had broken, they attacked him and slew him. There was slain the youth who had sanctified the name, doing what the rest of the community had not done, slaying three uncircumcised ones with his knife. The rest devotedly fasted daily and then endured martyrdom. They had wept for their families and their friends to the point of exhaustion so that they were unable to fight against the enemy. They declared, It is the decree of the king. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord and let us go and behold the great light. They were all slain sanctifying the name wholeheartedly and willingly, slaughtering one another. Young men and maidens, old men and women, and babes too were sacrificed in sanctification of the name. Those specifically mentioned by name acted thus, and the others not mentioned by name even surpassed them in valor. What they did had never been witnessed by the eye of man. They all fell by the hand of the Lord and returned to their rest, to the great light in the Garden of Eden. Behold, their souls are bound up till the time of the end in the bond of life with the Lord, God, who created them. When the saints, the pious ones of the Most High, the holy community of Mites, heard that some of the community of Spire had been slain and that the community of Worms had been attacked a second time, their spirits failed and their hearts melted and became as water. They cried out to the Lord, Alas, O Lord, God, will you completely annihilate the remnant of Israel? Where are all your wonders, which our forefathers related to us? Did you not bring us up from Egypt, O Lord? But now you have forsaken us 
delivering us into the hands of the Gentiles to destroy us. All the Jewish community leaders assembled and came before the bishop with his officers and servants and said to them, What shall we do about the news we have received regarding the slaughter of our brethren in Spire and Worms? The bishop and his followers replied, Heed our advice and bring all your money into our treasury and into the treasury of the bishop. And you, your wives, sons, and all your belongings shall come into the courtyard of the bishop. Thus will you be saved from the errant ones. The bishop assembled his ministers, servants, and great noblemen in order to rescue us from the errant ones. For at first it had been his desire to save us, but in the end he turned against us. So they gave this advice so as to herd us together and hold us like fish that are caught in an evil net and then turn us over to the enemy. The errant ones and the burghers then gathered against us and said to us, Where is he in whom you place your trust? How will you be saved? See the wonders which the crucified one works for us. And they all came with swords and lances to destroy us. But some of the burghers came and prevented them. At this point, the errant ones all united and battled the burghers on the bank of the river Rhine until an errant one was slain. Seeing this, the errant ones cried out, The Jews have caused this, and nearly all of them reassembled. When the holy people saw this, their hearts melted. The foe reviled and derided them with the intention of falling upon them. Upon hearing their words, the Jews, old and young alike, said, Would that our death might be by the hand of the Lord, so that we should not perish at the hands of the enemies of the Lord, for he is a merciful God, the sole sovereign of the universe. They abandoned their houses, neither did they go to the synagogue save on the Sabbath. That was the final Sabbath, before the evil decree befell us. On the new moon of Sivan, the wicked Count Emiko, may his bones be ground to dust between iron millstones, arrived outside the city with a mighty horde of errant ones and peasants, for he too had said, I desire to follow this stray course. He was the chief of all our oppressors. He showed no mercy to the aged or youths, or maidens, babes, or sucklings, not even the sick. And he made the people of the Lord like dirt to be trodden underfoot, killing their young men by the sword and disemboweling their pregnant women. The errant ones encamped outside the city for two days. The leaders of the community now said, Let us send Count Emiko money and give him letters of safe conduct so that the communities along the route will honor him. Perhaps the Lord will intercede in his abundant grace. For they had already given away money, giving the bishop, the count, his officers and servants, and the burghers, about 400 halves to aid the Jews. But it was of no avail whatsoever. On the third of the month of Sivan, the day on which Moses said, Be ready against the third day, on that day the diadem of Israel fell the students of the Torah fell, and the outstanding scholars passed away. Ended was the glory of the Torah, and the radiance of wisdom came to an end. He hath cast down from heaven unto the earth the splendor of Israel. Humility and the fear of sin ceased. Gone were the men of virtuous deed and purity, nullifiers of evil decrees, and placators of the wrath of the Creator. Diminished were the ranks of those who gave charity in secret. Gone was truth. Gone were the explicators of the word and the law. Fallen were the people of eminence. While the number of the shameless and insolent increased, 
Alas, they are gone, for since that day on which the second temple was destroyed, their like had not arisen, nor shall there be their like again. They sanctified the name with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their might. Happy are they. At midday, the evil Emiko, may his bones be ground to dust, came with his entire horde. The townspeople opened the gate to him, and the enemies of the Lord said to one another, Look, the gate has opened by itself. This the Crucified One has done for us, in order that we may avenge his blood on the Jews. They then came with their banners to the bishop's gate, where the people of the Sacred Covenant were assembled, a vast horde of them, as the sand upon the seashore. When the saints, the fearers of the Most High, saw this great multitude, they placed their trust in the Creator and clung to Him. They donned their armor and their weapons of war, adults and children alike, with Rabbi Kalonimos, son of Rabbi Meshulam, at their head. Like our fathers who, when they received the Torah at Mount Sinai at this season, promptly declared, We shall do and obey. So did the martyrs now declare in a great voice, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the God is one and they all advanced toward the gate to fight against the errant ones and the burghers. The two sides fought against each other around the gate, but the enemy overpowered them and captured the gate. The bishop's people, who had promised to help them, being as broken reed staffs, were the first to flee, so as to cause the Jews to fall into the hands of the enemy. However, 53 souls fled with Rabbi Kalonimos via the bishop's chambers, entered a long chamber called the sacristy, and remained there. The enemy entered the courtyard on the third day of Sivan, the third day of the week, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Let darkness and the shadow of death claim it for their own. Let God not inquire after it from above, nor let the light shine upon it. O oh, sun and moon, why did you not withhold your light? O oh, stars to whom Israel has been compared, and the twelve constellations, like the number of the tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob. Why was your light not withheld from shining for the enemy who sought to eradicate the name of Israel? Inquire and seek, was there ever such a mass sacrificial offering since the time of Adam? When the people of the sacred covenant saw that the heavenly decree had been issued and that the enemy had defeated them, they all cried out, young and old men, maidens, girls, children, men, servants, and maids, and wept for themselves and for their lives, saying, Let us bear the yoke of the holy creed, for now the enemy can slay us but by the lightest of the four deaths, which is the sword, and we shall then merit eternal life, and our souls will abide in the Garden of Eden, in the speculum of the great luminary. They all then said with gladness of heart and with willing soul, after all things, there is no questioning the ways of the Holy One. Blessed be He, and blessed be His name, who has given us His Torah, and has commanded us to allow ourselves to be killed and slain in witness to the oneness of His holy name. Happy are we if we fulfill His will, and happy is He who is slain or slaughtered, and who dies attesting the oneness of the name. Such a one will not only be worthy of entering the world to come and of sitting in the realm of the saints who are the pillars of the universe, he will also exchange a world of darkness for one of light, a world of sorrow for one of joy, a transitory world for an eternal world. And in a great voice they all cried out as one, We need tarry no longer. 
for the enemy is already upon us. Let us hasten to offer ourselves as a sacrifice to our Father in heaven. Anyone possessing a knife should slaughter us in sanctification of the one name of the everlasting one. Then this person should thrust his sword into either his throat or his stomach, slaughtering himself. They all arose, man and woman alike, and slew one another. The young maidens, the brides and the bridegrooms, looked out through the windows and cried out in a great voice, Look and behold, O Lord, what we are doing to sanctify thy great name, in order not to exchange your divinity for a crucified scion who was despised, abominated, and held in contempt in his own generation, a bastard son conceived by a menstruating and wanton woman. They were all slaughtered, and the blood of the slaughter streamed into the chambers where the children of the sacred covenant had taken refuge. They lay in rows, babes and aged men together, gurgling in their throats in the manner of slaughtered sheep. Wilt thou restrain thyself for these things, O Lord? Avenge the spilt blood of your servants. Let one and all behold. Has the like of this ever occurred? For they all vied with one another, each with his fellow, saying, I shall be the first to sanctify the name of the supreme king of kings. The saintly women threw their money outside to delay the enemy until they had slaughtered their children. The hands of compassionate women strangled their children in order to do the will of their master and they turned the faces of their tender, lifeless children toward the Gentiles. When the enemy came into the chambers, they smashed the doors and found the Jews writhing and rolling in blood, and the enemy took their money, stripped them naked, and slew those still alive, leaving neither a vestige nor a remnant. Thus they did in all the chambers where children of the sacred covenant were to be found. But one room remained, which was somewhat difficult to break into, and the enemy fought over it till nightfall. When the saints saw that the enemy was prevailing over them, they rose up, men and women alike, and slaughtered the children, and then slaughtered one another. Some of them fell upon their swords and perished, and others were slaughtered with their own swords or knives. The righteous women hurled stones from the windows on the enemy, and the enemy threw rocks back at them. The women were struck by the stones, and their bodies and faces were completely bruised and cut. They taunted and reviled the errant ones with the name of the crucified, despicable, and abominable son of harlotry, saying, In whom do you place your trust? In a putrid corpse. The misled ones then approached to smash the door. There was a distinguished young woman there, named Mistress Rachel, daughter of Isaac, son of Asher who said to her friend, Four children have I, have no mercy on them either, lest those uncircumcised ones come and seize them alive, and raise them in their ways of error. In my children too shall you sanctify the holy name of God. Her friend came and took the knife. When Rachel saw the knife, she cried loudly and bitterly, weeping and saying, Where is your grace, Lord? The friend then took Rachel's little son Isaac, who was a delightful boy, and slaughtered him. His brother Aaron, upon seeing that his brother had been slaughtered, cried, Mother, mother, do not slaughter me, and fled, hiding under a box. Rachel then took her two daughters, Bella and Madrona, and sacrificed them to the Lord, God of hosts, who commanded us not to depart from his pure doctrine and to remain wholehearted with him. When this pious woman had completed sacrificing three of her children to our Creator, 
She raised her voice and called to her son Aaron. Aaron, where are you? I will not spare you either or have mercy on you. She drew him out by his feet from under the box where he had hidden and slaughtered him before the exalted and lofty God. Rachel then placed them in her two sleeves, two children on one side and two on the other, beside her stomach, until finally the errant ones captured the chamber and found her sitting and lamenting over them. They said to her, Show us the money you have in your sleeves. But when they saw the slaughtered children, they smote and killed her upon them. It is of her that it was said. The mother was dashed in pieces with her children. She perished with them, as did that righteous mother who perished with her seven sons. And it is of her that it was said, the mother of the children rejoices. The errant ones slew all those who were inside and stripped them naked as they still quivered and writhed in their blood. See, O Lord, and behold, how abject I am become. Then they threw them out of the rooms, through the windows, naked, creating mounds upon mounds, heaps upon heaps, until they appeared as a high mountain. Many of the children of the sacred covenant were still alive when they were thus thrown, and they gestured with their fingers, Give us water to drink. When the errant ones saw this, they asked, It is your desire to defile yourselves, to be baptized? The victims shook their head in refusal and gazed upward to their Father in heaven, thus saying, No, and pointed with their fingers to the Blessed Holy One, whereupon the errant ones slew them. The errant ones then began to rage tumultuously in the name of the Crucified One, they raised their banner and proceeded to the remainder of the community, and all of them fell into the hand of the Lord. Those who have been cited by name performed these acts. As to the rest of the community and their leaders, I have no knowledge to what extent they attested the oneness of the name of the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be he and blessed be his name, like Rabbi Akiba and his companions. May the Lord rescue us from this exile. Hello, and welcome to History of the Uchmer, episode 2.8. May his bones be ground to dust between iron millstones. Today, we'll be talking about the Rhineland massacres of Jewish communities that accompanied the First Crusade. Before we even get started, I want to shout out the historian Robert Chazan, whose various works were of invaluable aid to me in preparing this episode. I'll be quoting from a few later on, but one that functioned as just an overall guide was the one he wrote for the Cambridge Medieval Textbook series, titled The Jews of Medieval Western Christendom, 1000-1500. Not only is his work super informative, but Chazen's writing is clear, detailed, and a joy to read, honestly. I read a lot for this podcast, like a lot, and there are tons of historians who have great ideas and do great work, but you kind of have to meet their writing halfway. And then there are others who really know how to present their material in a way that you just glide through it as if the author knows exactly where to provide extra information or context or an anecdote to illustrate their point. Chazan is definitely in the latter category, and without the broader context that I gained from reading The Jews of Medieval Western Christendom, this episode would have been impossible. 
If you're familiar with medieval uh, European history, even then you probably don't know much about the Jews of the era and of the region. And there's a few different reasons for that, but um, one of the big hurdles is just that it's all written in Hebrew. The primary sources are in Hebrew. And for me, for example, I read Latin so I can check something, a primary source. I don't read any Hebrew. So I think it's really, really useful to have experts like Chazan delve into that aspect and connect it to some of the things that we see going on in the Latin sources, for example. Talking about primary sources, our opening today was pulled from the medieval Hebrew text known as the Mites Anonymous. It has this name because its authorship is unknown. We can only surmise that he was a member of the Jewish community of Mainz because he gives the most details about the events at Mainz. And we do assume he's a he because, well, you know, it's the Middle Ages. Unless your name is Anna Komnini, ladies writing history is pretty much unheard of. Because we've already got one anonymous author, the fellow who penned the Gesta Francorum, I will refer to the author of Mites Anonymous as Mites Anonymous or just Mainz. Hopefully, you don't get him confused for the city of Mainz. Anyway, Mainz Anonymous is one of the three Hebrew sources that describe the events of 1095 and 1096. The other two are the Solomon Bar Simpson Chronicle, which I quoted from at the end of our last episode, and the Eliza Bar Nathan Chronicle. These three sources must actually be related in some way because they often have identical passages. Whether it was the original authors who included these passages, or maybe a copyist down the line made a compilation or pulled from another source to add more detail, um, it's hard to tell. Mainz Anonymous specifically survives in just one copy from the 15th century, which also includes notes from the copyist. The first line, I shall begin the narrative of past persecution, as well as the last bit, which states that the writer doesn't know anything about what happened to the rest of the Jewish community, both of those are actually annotations from the copyist. The original text has no first-person singular I. It's entirely in third person. Uh, the only bits that delve into first person are biblical quotations inserted into the narrative. And, well, God is also addressed in second person. Mainz gives a clear and surprisingly detailed account of the events that surrounded the start of the First Crusade. He describes the motivations of the Crusaders, they're going to the tomb of the Crucified One, as one does, and he describes how they suddenly turned against their Jewish neighbors. The words he puts into their mouths about Jews being responsible for the death of Jesus, I mean the Crucified One, could have been ripped straight from the lyrics of La Chanson d'Antioche. He mentions that the communities in France were the first to feel the wrath of these persecutions. He then says that the communities of the Rhine gave money to the first few Crusaders, probably in reference to the armies following Walter Sansevoir and Peter the Hermit, who had both left Cologne in April. Other Hebrew sources indicate that Peter was happy to leave the Jews alone in return for provisions, which were already probably running low. Peter appears to have had a letter from a French Jewish community that ensured he would receive supplies from other Jewish communities on his path east. Mainz mentions that they tried later to convince the army of Count Emico, we'll get to him, to accept the same deal, but to no avail. Though some stray elements of Walter's and Peter's armies engaged in petty raiding and possibly targeted Jewish communities specifically, this was nothing compared to what would happen next. Perhaps because the Jewish communities had already spent their extortion budget, other armies seemed to have focused more exclusively on persecuting Rhineland Jews. Mainz and other sources, both Hebrew and Latin, 
point specifically to a contingent under a certain Count Emiko that appears to have spearheaded attacks against Jews. Count Emiko, much like Walter Sansavoir, was one of many nobles who attached themselves not to Urban's project, which, as we talked about last week, was set to leave on August 15th, but to Peter the Hermit's much more improvised armed pilgrimage, which got going in the spring of 1096. In Mainz's account, Count Emiko first appears at Speyer around May 3rd, where he was only able to kill a few Jews because the community was protected by the bishop of the town. However, although the bishops of Worms and Mainz tried to some extent to protect the Jews in these cities, they were unable to do so. And Count Emiko's army joined with locals in an orgy of violence at Worms on May 18th and at Mainz on May 27th. Now, it's possible Emiko was not actually present at Speyer or Worms, but he was definitely present at Mainz. And both Hebrew and Latin sources pretty much universally point to Count Emiko as the leader of this anti-Jewish contingent of the army. Though when exactly he took up this role is unclear. And it's possible that this force he had at Mainz was made up of disparate groups that coalesced together. This would explain why Mainz was the worst of these atrocities. Because while the sources indicate only a dozen people died at Speyer, 800 died at Worms, and 1,100 died at Mainz. Mainz's account is corroborated by both the other Hebrew sources as well as that of various Latin historians. Albert of Aachen, for example, writes, quote, I do not know if it was because of a judgment of God or some delusion in their minds, but the pilgrims rose in a spirit of cruelty against the Jews who were scattered throughout all the cities, and they inflicted a most cruel slaughter on them, especially in the kingdom of Lotharingia, claiming that this was the beginning of their crusade and service against the enemies of Christianity. End quote. Albert and the other Latin historians condemn the attacks, though I will mention that Robert the monk comes closest to justifying them. But remember that Robert's also the guy that obsessed over the supposed atrocities committed against Christians in the East when he related Urban's speech. Way too specific about stuff that he was definitely making up himself. There was something seriously wrong with that guy that comes through in his writing even a thousand years later. Fuck, I wonder if anyone will ever say that about my podcast. And in general, when I say condemn here, it's more like lightly disapprove of. Albert, after all, says that maybe it was the judgment of God that led to the persecution of Jews. Hebrew and Latin chronicles both mention the Jewish preference for martyrdom over being baptized. This martyrdom took the form of multiple murder-suicides, which the Latin chronicles are horrified by. In the Hebrew chronicles, these decisions are seen as valiant, after all, these were martyrs, though as we heard in the opening, they are related in gory detail. And Mainz breaks the fourth wall, so to speak, to address God and ask him if this suffering is enough for him to intervene. Modern historians are in agreement that while these murder-suicides took place, it seems unlikely that the choice offered to these martyrs was between baptism and death, as the Hebrew Chronicles show it. It's more likely the choice was between death by a Christian hand or death by your own hand. Baptism seems to have only been offered in limited circumstances, often to the survivors who'd hidden during the mass killings, after the crusaders' bloodlust had been sated. It seems Hebrew chronicles chose to put more agency in the actions of their fellow Jews, and in this way, honor their memory as examples for future generations. 
It sends a very different message to say the martyrs killed themselves to avoid being killed by crusaders than to say they killed themselves in refusal of apostasy. Mainz focuses on the three cities in his immediate surroundings, Speyer, Worms, and Mainz, which were not only close geographically, but socially. They operated as one group, and this sort of macro community encompassing these three cities was known as Schum. Persecutions were not limited to Schum, though. After the massacre at Mainz, it seems Count Emico headed to Cologne, where only the intervention of the bishop prevented a repeat. What's important to note here is that Cologne is not on the way to the Holy Land. It's actually completely the opposite direction to the northwest. Uh, guys. Jerusalem. Would be that way. After Cologne, Count Emigo seems to have grown bored of hunting victims in the countryside, so he and his army finally moved southeast, towards the Holy Land. You know, where they were supposed to have been headed this whole time. A remnant of his army broke off, though, and headed even farther west, to Metz in modern-day France and Trier. By the end of June, the murder spree finally ran out of steam. In total, the number of Jews who died during the persecutions between May and June in the year 1096 is estimated to be at least 4,000 and may have been more than 8,000. Those are pretty huge numbers considering the population density of Europe at this time. As I mentioned, I can't read Hebrew at all, modern or biblical, none whatsoever. I can kind of work with the Greek alphabet, but Hebrew script and really any other script that's not like the Latin script completely escapes me. See, the thing is that if I want to look up a phrase or a word, I can't even equate the symbols I'm looking at with ones in a dictionary, because maybe what I see as a wholly new symbol is just a change in font. I mention all this because I want to talk about two terms from the text. But if you do speak Hebrew and you notice I fuck something up entirely, please let me know. Uh, feel free to shoot me an email at history.of.the.utremer at gmail.com. Just please write it in English or some romance language. So I obviously had to rely on translations for the opening, and the one I used was specifically that of historian Shlomo Eidelberg in The Jews and the Crusaders, the Hebrew Chronicles of the First and Second Crusades. Eidelberg uses two terms to refer to the quote-unquote First Crusaders, both the errant ones and Crusaders. Errant here means a wanderer or a voyager, think like errant knight. No problem there. However, there is a bit of an issue with the use of the term crusader. As we've talked about before, the term crusader was not popularized until about a century after the First Crusade. So what is Eidelberg translating as crusader here? I scoured Eidelberg's text and his footnotes, but I could not for the life of me find any clarification on what the original Hebrew term was. However, Robert Chazen comes in and provides some much-needed clarification. Quote, the most striking reflection of Jewish awareness of the centrality of the pilgrimage in crusader thinking is the regular use of the Hebrew to'im as the designation for the crusaders. The Hebrew noun denotes those who move about aimlessly and in error, and it is clearly intended as a pejorative response to the Christian sense of the crusaders as peregrini, pilgrims. End quote. Here's the issue. Eidelberg uses both the terms errant one, a more literal translation of what do'im seems to mean, and the term crusader. 
So I'm not sure if he's referencing different terms here or just being inconsistent for some reason. So here's what I did. Where Eidelberg said crusader, which was only twice in the text I quoted, I replaced it with errant one. Because that is a term he uses most often to refer to the folks who, as we talked about last time and as Chazan alludes to, would have considered themselves pilgrims. I did not use the term crusader because it seems anachronistic to me. However, I do leave open the possibility that Eidelberg was translating some term that was not to'im as crusader. Maybe some term alluding to these folks all wearing crosses. I dug through his footnotes, like I said, and as far as I can see, he doesn't have one explaining what's going on there. The other phrase I want to talk about is the title of today's episode. May his bones be ground to dust between iron millstones. Now, this is a curse that Mites Anonymous uses after referring to Count Emiko. It's actually a pretty common curse, and in Hebrew, it's pronounced something like Shchik Etvet. Apologies for my Hebrew. Uh, it means something like, may the bones be eroded. Often you see it translated as, may his bones be crushed, or may his bones be ground to dust. If you're familiar with Roman history... You probably know that this curse was often uttered after mentioning the name of the Roman emperor who crushed a Jewish uprising, circa 130 AD, killing hundreds of thousands of Roman Jews and literally wiping the Roman province of Judea off the map by renaming it Syria-Palestine. Gaishad Hadrianus, Hadrian. May his bones be crushed. In Mainz Anonymous, the mention of Count Emigo's name warrants the addition of the instruments with which to carry out this bone-crushing, iron millstones. In a footnote, I told you I read all of them, Heidelberg points to a Jewish midrash for further explanation of this curse. A midrash, by the way, is a critical interpretation of the Bible. This midrash, specifically, is known as the Breshith Rabbah. Again, sorry for my Hebrew. And it is basically a running commentary on Genesis, you know, the Abrahamic account of the creation of the earth. The way it basically works is that it will say something and then point to a specific line from Genesis that supports this conclusion. Often, the line in the Bible is much more abstract and ambiguous. The Midrash is supposed to turn that into a more actionable recommendation. The bit I imagine Eidelberg is referencing reads, quote, if one makes mention of a righteous man and does not bless him, he violates a positive command. What is the proof? Quote, the memory of the righteous shall be for a blessing. While he who mentions a wicked man and does not curse him also violates a positive command. What is the reason? Quote, but the name of the wicked shall rot. End quote. Right, so this is basically saying that you need to bless righteous folks and curse wicked folks. And the Bible has a bit of passages there that prove it. I totally get the logic, guys. Uh, crush those bones. I really fell into a research black hole looking all this stuff up, by the way. Surprisingly, if you Google what is the literal translation of the term that Hebrew Chronicles of the First Crusade used to refer to crusaders, you really don't get much in the way of uh, answers. But, you know, after I finish recording, I'm going to try it on Bing and see what happens. Okay, so we're at about the halfway mark here, and the rest of the episode is really just going to focus on giving some more context to these events. But let me give you an idea of my headspace right now. Okay, so when I was a kid, I wanted to be an artist. I loved comic books and manga, and I drew all the time. I wasn't half bad either. I also took a few art courses. In one particular course, I learned about and practiced one particular method that has kind of stuck with me. 
negative drawing. So negative drawing is when instead of focusing on representing an object, you focus on representing the negative space around it. It's usually done in black and white, and so you use the white of the page to represent whatever it is that you want to represent, be it a person or an animal or a piece of fruit. And then you use black ink, or often graphite really, to fill in the outline around it. Negative drawing is a really good way to approach representing an object from a different perspective. And I've taken my experience with this method and extrapolated it to other contexts, like this one. As Latin Christian crusaders cut a path through Eurasia, they disrupted the lives of thousands if not millions of inhabitants in these lands. These inhabitants and the records they made of the First Crusade are invaluable to us. They provide the much-needed negative space surrounding the First Crusade. In episode 2.6, I mentioned that the accounts of the monks who recorded histories of the First Crusade after the event gave us more holistic accounts because they not only represented the thoughts and ideals of the Reformed Church, but also of the knights who participated in the Crusade. And last time, in episode 2.7, I mentioned that this was only a partial view, because it left out the motivations and perspectives of the lower classes in the First Crusade. But that's still not the full picture. After all, not everyone who went on the Crusade was a knight, and not everyone who was affected by it even participated directly. What's more, those on the inside of Latin Christendom were looking at the event from an angle that had plenty of blind spots. To stick with my artistic metaphors, think of it like trying to draw a painting of yourself without a mirror or a reference picture you kind of have to be on the outside of something to see it as a whole. And that's where we'll be positioning ourselves today, on the outside of the First Crusade, building up the negative space that surrounded the First Crusaders. And that brings us to the Jews of Western Europe, the first group, though definitely not the last, to get a sneak peek at Latin Christendom's brand new hobby, crusading. Now, the Jews of Western Europe are generally split into two groups, the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim. Sephardim comes from the Hebrew word for Spain, Sephard, and Ashkenazim comes from the Hebrew word for Germany, Ashkenaz. Both of these words, by the way, are references to biblical places that were then repurposed and mapped onto Europe. As the German community, the Ashkenazim, grew larger in prominence, the communities of France, England, and the rest of Central Europe were also assimilated into this group. One of the reasons for the divide between Sephardim and Ashkenazim has to do with the dominant religion of these two regions, as most of Spain was under Muslim control, while Germany was ruled by Latin Christians. As we talked about frequently in Season 1, Episode 1.1 is a good example, Muslim societies were much more diverse and had large Christian and Jewish communities. The rulers in these societies were also much more open to allowing members from these minority communities to play leading roles as administrators or judges. By comparison, Western Europe was much less diverse and much less accepting of minorities. So the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim lived very different realities. For example, the Sephardim often mentioned that their co-religionists to the north are ignorant of Jewish law, as they rarely have the chance to practice it. Stereotypically, they're portrayed as much humbler and pious in a sort of simple, pure way. The Jews of Spain were well-read and delved into ancient classics, which were readily available in Arabic. In the modern era, due to a variety of factors, including decimation resulting from persecution, 
expulsions of Jews and just general migration and assimilation to Israel and other modern hubs of the Jewish community, the ethnic groups within the Jewish community have changed a bit, and often Ashkenazim is used as a catch-all term for any European Jews, blurring the medieval line between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. And in fact, the vast majority of Jews worldwide are of Ashkenazic origin. Back in the late 11th century, this eventuality would have been hard to predict. Around 1160, just a few decades after the First Crusade, a Spanish Jew named Benjamin of Tudela embarked on one of the most audacious journeys of the medieval era. He left his native town of Tudela in the Christian kingdom of Navarre and traveled through France, Italy, the Balkans, Anatolia, the Levant, Egypt, and even Iran. And he took notes, which, even if they were monotonously written, were copious. Benjamin's descriptions of Jewish communities throughout Western Eurasia provides the foundation for a detailed snapshot of the Jewish community in the middle of the Middle Ages. This was a world in flux. Benjamin noticed and remarked on the various Jewish communities he encountered during his travels. In Constantinople, one of, if not the largest city in Europe, he records a community of 3,000 Jews, though it's not clear if he means individuals or households or just men. In Alexandria, 7,000 Jews. And in the richest, wealthiest city of Western Eurasia, Baghdad, among the millions living there was a Jewish community of 40,000. A minority community that was probably larger than any entire city north of the Alps. These descriptions contrast greatly with the communities Benjamin encountered in Latin Christendom. The Jewish quarters of these cities were small communities of only a few hundred, maybe slightly over a thousand in places like Mainz. But already, these communities were on the rise. In a way, the growth of Jewish communities mirrors the growth of Western Europe as a whole. Around the time of Benjamin of Tudela, there were already some signs of this being the case. Latin Christendom was already beginning to grind away at its Muslim neighbors. See, for example, the Normans in Sicily, and of course, the Reconquista. In fact, just a few years before his birth, Benjamin's future hometown of Tudela was wrenched away from the Muslims by Alfonso el Batallador, Alphonse the Battler. We'll actually have to talk about him in the future, because when he died, he left his kingdom, the merged kingdom of Aragon and Navarre, to the holy orders of the Levant, the Knights Hospitaller, the Knights Templar, and the Order of the Holy Sepulchre. That's a story for another time, though. If you want to talk about Latin Christendom chipping away Muslim territory, there's this whole Utremer thing. Heard of it? Well, that was a definite display of Western Europe's newfound capabilities. These newfound capabilities reflect a noticeable evolution in the productivity of Western Europe. You don't just go one day from being a backwater to all of a sudden having armies that can invade the superpowers of your world. In fact, it's no coincidence that the first Ashkenazi communities started to crop up just at the same time as Western Europe started its upwards trajectory. These Jewish communities moved north from the Mediterranean in search of opportunities, opportunities that didn't exist in earlier periods. Especially in regions not bordering the Mediterranean, Latin Christendom was an economic wasteland for most of the early Middle Ages. Part of the reason you don't find many minority groups there is because who would have wanted to move there? Now, we will have to talk about the environmental changes underpinning this growth in the future. Back in episode 1.10, we focused on the southeastern Mediterranean, which seems to have been suffering cold snaps and droughts. 
Well, at the same time to the northwest, the so-called medieval warm period was in full effect. This warm period saw the productivity of the land greatly increase. And as a consequence, there was a population boom, accompanied by increased economic complexity and military firepower. Changes in ecological practices, that is, how people interacted with the natural environment, also seem to have played a huge role in many of the social changes we've discussed this season, from the fracturing of the Carolingian Empire into quasi-independent duchies, to the religious developments that created the Reform Papacy. How exactly this process took place is complicated and a story for another time. However, the experience of the Ashkenazim highlights the way European society was changing and puts into relief many of the pressures that had led to the violently religious behavior of which the First Crusade is just one example. Robert Chazan illustrates this concept in a way that I would never be able to beat, so I'll just steal his words. In European Jewry and the First Crusade, he says, quote, The development of the First Crusade, as well as the state of late 11th century Northern European Jewry, can be understood only against the background of a broad material and spiritual revival throughout Western Christendom during the 10th and 11th centuries, which had particularly pronounced impact in the heretofore backward areas of Northern Europe. The precise starting point, the causes, and the stages of this revival are shrouded in obscurity and are consequently debated by modern historians. What is remarkable, however, is the level of agreement in present-day research concerning the fact of this upsurge. Students of demography and economics, social organization, urban development, and intellectual life all describe a new vitality in European life during these poorly documented centuries. This revival seems to have proceeded on a number of fronts simultaneously. It is impossible to pinpoint a single causative factor and to attribute developments in other sectors to its impact. Instead, the scholarly consensus suggests that demographic growth, economic vitalization, political maturation, and intellectual renewal took place side by side. To be sure, these developments were interrelated and reinforced one another. There is widespread agreement that the demographic curve rose from the late 10th century on, although no clear data to prove this population growth are available. The widely shared impression of demographic expansion is based on evidence of city development land reclamation, and outward migration. Such population growth was supported by improvements in the economic and political spheres, and contributed in turn to economic and political betterment. Advances in the economic sphere are even more palpable than in the demographic. Much as it is true that the raids of the Norsemen, widely lamented in the literature of the 9th and early 10th century, were devastating to segments of European society, recent historians have emphasized that these attacks also had certain positive effect. New trade routes were opened, and precious metals and goods flowed more freely. Particularly affected by these developments were northern areas, which had been on the peripheries of the Carolingian Empire. These include England, Flanders, and sections of western and northern Germany. Related to demographic growth and economic revival is an improvement in forms of political organization. This improvement flowed in part from the demographic and economic advances. In part, it accelerated them. Of special significance is the growth of urban centers, by which is meant both the enlargement of already existing urban nuclei and the establishment of new settlements. Both occurred widely throughout Western Europe, during this time again most noticeably in the areas involved in the newly expanding trade. In some instances, vigorous new townships developed alongside the ruins of Roman cities, 
while in others, entirely new urban nuclei were established. These expanding urban centers served both the commercial purposes of the burgeoning trade of Northern Europe and the administrative purposes of the maturing political administrations. Jews are mentioned often in the documentation related to this urbanization, and it is obvious that this urbanization was a major factor in the rapid development of Jewish life in the area. The same broad pattern of revival affected the church. It expressed itself at every level, in the enhanced efficiency of ecclesiastical organization, in the reforming of ecclesiastical discipline, and in the dynamically expanding Cluniac movement. The spearhead of this process, and its most visible symbol, was the reformed papacy, exemplified in the reign of Pope Gregory VII. Particularly significant was the new vigor of the monasteries, with the Cluniacs taking the lead. Monastic practices were scrutinized and regularized, with efforts made to ensure adherence to proper standards. The monasteries became centers for the creative advances of the late 10th and 11th century. These creative advances were expressed in the institutional changes just noted. The real focus, however, was the hearts and minds of individuals. A growing number of men and women began to devote themselves to exploring fundamental issues of faith. And once this force of inquiry was unleashed, it very quickly came to absorb the talents and time of gifted teachers and students. It has often been suggested that the Jews, by their very presence, afforded some measure of stimulation to this intellectual renewal. Likewise, the general intellectual vigor of the wider society had its impact upon the Jews of Northern Europe. This spirit of questioning and intellectual vigor extended beyond the formal school structure and the established curriculum. It filtered down into society at large, occasionally evoking new religious ideas and ideals. Its impact was felt everywhere in religious life, in education, in the relation of the individual to society, and in the very notion of individual identity itself, in every branch of the sciences and the arts. So far, I have emphasized the positive developments of the 10th and 11th centuries. It is clear, however, that such periods of dynamic growth are never free of the conflict and tension that rapid change inevitably produces. Although both secular and ecclesiastical governments matured rapidly, neither was able to cope fully with the internal conflicts generated by widespread change. In part, the atmosphere of dynamic growth encouraged the bold to aggrandizement at the expense of their neighbors. In part, the changes left many, particularly at the lower levels of society, frustrated and dissatisfied. Conflict extended from the highest stratum of society to the lowest. The conflict at the highest levels is epitomized by the struggle for power between church and state, dubbed by subsequent historians the investiture controversy. The seed of this controversy lay in the changes that had upset the old order and opened new possibilities for power and control. Within lay ranks, the lust for greater power occasioned a series of extended conflicts. The stakes were high, and the victors, for example, the Norman dukes and the Angevin counts, emerged as the foremost political leaders in Europe. Less romantic and more pervasive was the daily violence endemic to the period. Everyday violence, both organized and spontaneous, was a fearsome reality. An effort to direct the given violence of the society into legitimate channels is widely cited as one factor among many in the call to crusade. Moreover, the Jews, a weak and exposed element in European society, probably suffered disproportionately from the general lawlessness of the period. One element in the massacre of the Jews in 1096 was precisely 
the general tendency toward bestiality depicted above. The major characteristic of 11th century Northern Europe seems to have been vitality. Out of this vitality emerged budding new urban centers, along with small but significant Jewish settlements, and the physical and spiritual vigor that engendered the First Crusade developed with them. Unfortunately, every such period of growth has its victims as well, and the Jews who had been attracted to this rapidly developing area were destined to suffer from the crusading fervor that sprang from 11th century vitality. Indeed, the attraction was mutual. The far-sighted leaders of Northern Europe were interested in attracting Jews, and Jews were prepared to take the risks involved in migration. At the same time, dangers manifested themselves almost immediately. In part, these dangers were general, the violence often spawned by the aggressiveness and the frustrations of a period of rapid change. In part, they were particularly threatening for the Jews, as newcomers and as dissenters from the central religious faith that united most inhabitants of the area. End quote. All right, that was a long one, but I really couldn't reword what Chazan was saying. It would have just felt wrong. As Chazan indicates, the persecution of Jews in the 11th century was tied up in broader social and economic upheaval. And in a way, the destruction of these communities was a facet of commercial competition between the interests of Christian and Jewish merchants. The persecutions of Jews were really urban affairs. They took place in the economic powerhouses of the area, cities like Mainz and Worms, which were on the rise. This was partially because Jewish communities were predominantly urban, but also because their persecutors were often urban. The Hebrew Chronicles are consistent in portraying the burghers, meaning the townspeople, as in league with the crusaders. Though Mainz Anonymous does indicate some of the burghers sided with the Jews and sought to protect them, it's often taken as a given that most of their urban neighbors, particularly the elite, would take any opportunity offered to massacre successful Jewish communities. As Eidelberg puts it, quote, on the eve of the First Crusade, the economic situation in Germany was undoubtedly a strong factor in the shaping of local attitudes towards the Jews. Trade involving native German merchants began to emerge at this time, and in the course of its growth, inevitably clashed with the established interests of Jewish commerce. The jealousies of the competing burghers were fanned by the anti-Jewish rhetoric accompanying the Crusades. In some cases, the opportunity to mitigate the threat of Jewish competition was provided by the religiously centered attacks of the Crusaders. End quote. Basically, the burghers used a thin veneer of crusading spirit to mask their attempts to destroy commercial competition. For the German merchants of the Rhineland, the religious fervor of the Crusade was an opportunity to do away with Jewish merchants that would have been otherwise untouchable. And why were they untouchable? Well, because the established elite, the nobility and the church, often protected Jewish communities. Condemnation of the burghers is universal in the Hebrew Chronicles, and the Jewish authors are all too aware of the economic incentives that the burghers had in massacring Jews. However, the authorities, particularly religious authorities, are often portrayed as allies. Take, for example, Bishop John from the opening, who Mainz Anon says is a righteous man among the Gentiles, and in fact, a tool of God's to protect his chosen people. Mainz is pretty clear in presenting Bishop John as opposed to the burghers. According to Mainz, the bishop actually cut off some burghers' hands for their crimes against Jews, and he's credited with saving the Jewish community of Speyer from the same fate that befell Worms and Mainz. Though not all bishops are portrayed in such a positive light, 
even those that end up persecuting the Jews, either trying to convert them or extort them, don't seem to be participating in the same sort of bloodlust that characterizes the actions of the Crusaders and the Burgers. They're usually just greedy. Still, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that the persecution of Jews was limited to the burghers and commoners that had swelled the ranks of the Peasants' Crusade. Though these were a large majority, there were also nobles and clergy present in Count Emigo's forces. Count Emigo himself is described by Albert of Aachen as potentissimus, or most powerful. And though it's not clear, it's possible that the clergy in his army were the ones who carried out forced baptisms of Jews which they should have known was forbidden according to church custom. Still, on the whole, not only the Hebrew chronicles, but also the Latin ones, make it clear that the higher-ups at the church were opposed to these persecutions. Perhaps not vehemently opposed, but still opposed. Even if the chronicles often point to Urban's sermon at Claremont as the root of this evil, they never say Urban directed the crusaders to attack Jews. It's presented as a mutation of this original plan sort of cooked up by the First Crusaders. We talked about it at length in episode 2.6 and 2.7. Uh, Urban really only had a loose grip over how the Crusaders interpreted his message. And Mites Anonymous, as well as the other Hebrew chroniclers, understood that. Interestingly enough, it's the German Emperor, Henry IV, who is most consistently portrayed as being opposed to the persecution of Jews. He appears to have directly intervened against local rulers who decided to participate in these massacres, as is clearly illustrated in a passage from the Solomon Bar Simpson Chronicle. Quote, Duke Godfrey of Bouillon, may his bones be ground to dust, arose in the hardness of his spirit, driven by a spirit of wantonness, to go with those journeying to the profane shrine, vowing to go on this journey only after avenging the blood of the crucified one by shedding Jewish blood, and completely eradicating any trace of those bearing the name Jew, thus assuaging his own burning wrath. To be sure, there arose someone to repair the breach, a God-fearing man who had been bound to the most holy of altars, called Rabbi Kalonimos, the Parnas of the community of Mainz. He dispatched a messenger to King Henry in the kingdom of Pula, where the king had been dwelling during the past nine years, and related all that had happened. The king was enraged and dispatched letters to all the ministers, bishops, and governors of all the provinces of his realm, as well as to Duke Godfrey, containing words of greeting and commanding them to do no bodily harm to the Jews and to provide them with help and refuge. The evil duke then swore that he had never intended to do them harm. The Jews of Cologne, nevertheless, bribed him with 500 zekukim of silver, as did the Jews of Mainz. The duke assured them of his support and promised them peace. End quote. So, a few of these names should stand out to you if you got a sharp ear. We've actually already met Rabbi Kalonimos. He's featured in the opening. He died on May 27, 1096, in the mass suicide that took place in the bishop's chambers during the massacre at Mainz. That means this interaction must have taken place in early May. And Duke Godfrey of Bouillon is someone we'll be getting to know real well real soon, because in 1099 he will become the first ruler of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And it seems like Godfrey wanted to get some massacring in as a bit of a amuse-bouche before going east. One interesting point is that Godfrey didn't set out in spring, he set out in August. Presumably, he used the money he had extorted from Jewish communities to prepare for his voyage. He left from Lorraine, just north of the Rhineland, where the massacres had taken place, 
and he followed the same land route as Walter Sansevoir, Peter the Hermit, and Count Emico. He also appears to have absorbed a lot of stragglers from these armies. Earlier I mentioned that after Count Emico had attacked the Jews at Cologne, a portion of his army had moved farther west to Metz and Trier. Well, it seems that most of this army finally turned east and tried to catch up with Emiko, but wasn't able to do so. By this time, however, it was already August and Godfrey was setting out, so a large number of them just globbed onto Godfrey's army. We'll get to Godfrey's army later on, but events will show that his forces definitely inherited some of the more bloodthirsty personality traits that Emiko's campaign had shown. Just you wait until he gets to Constantinople. As I mentioned last time, it's Albert of Aachen's history that is a main source for both Peter the Hermit and the more popular elements of the First Crusade. Albert of Aachen is also a main source for Godfrey of Bouillon's participation in the First Crusade, particularly in the early stages. This overlap is no coincidence. Now, Godfrey was a vassal of King Henry, meaning the German Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV. The Solomon Bar Simpson Chronicle says that Henry was in Pula when he heard of Godfrey's plans. This is actually a bit of a mistake. Pula refers to Apulia, a region in southern Italy, under Norman control, where Henry most definitely wasn't. He was in Italy, though, so the mistake is understandable. The reason Henry was in Italy, by the way, is that he was fighting a complicated war against Matilde di Canossa. Actually, this is how his wife, Eupraxia, fled his grasp and teamed up with Matilde and the Reform Papacy, as we discussed in episode 2.5. Henry had taken Eupraxia with him to Italy, and apparently locked her up in a castle from which he had escaped. In this interaction between the Jews of Mainz, Godfrey of Bouillon, and Henry IV, we can see how the Ashkenazi communities actually benefited from the investiture controversy, because there were two big reasons why Henry might have chosen to support his Jewish subjects instead of letting Godfrey do whatever he wanted. Reason number one was very pragmatic. Money. In 1090, Henry had formally accorded privileges to the Jewish communities of Speyer and Worms. The communities almost certainly paid a pretty penny for this paperwork to be expedited, and it's pretty likely that they kept paying him for protection. I'm really trying to get my money's worth out of this pop filter catching all my plosives. Reason number two was that in many ways, support from the Jewish community was safe. Henry was locked in this struggle with the reform papacy under Urban. He needed allies. Meanwhile, the Jewish communities of the Rhineland were limited in terms of their options. Unlike his Christian allies, they couldn't easily flip-flop to the Urban faction. So cultivating a relationship with the Ashkenazi was in many ways a safer bet. And Henry proved to be a loyal ally to the Jews. Mainz Anonymous mentions that the bishop of the town abandoned the Jews of Mainz and turned them over to the Crusaders, after having received a sizable bribe and promising to protect them. Well, in 1098, Henry launched an investigation into the final whereabouts of the victim's property, and even directly accused some of the bishop's family members as having illegally profited from the massacre. He even allowed for the apostasy of baptized Jews. They could return to their own faith even though this decision was opposed by his very own antipope, Clement III. What's more, in 1103, Henry proclaimed a peace of God throughout his empire. You know, one of those formal controls on warfare. And he included Jews in the list of protected citizens, alongside priests, monks, merchants, and women. Henry's behavior actually reminds me more of Muslim rulers, guys like the Seljuk Sultan Malik Shah and the various Fatimid Imam caliphs, 
they often cultivated relationships with minorities because these groups provided them with a solid bulwark against the more traditionally powerful elements within their realms. Think about it like this. Would you rather negotiate with someone who has their own source of legitimacy and power, someone who has other options, or would you rather squeeze a deal out of someone who's in a precarious position and has no other option but to settle the deal on your terms? The Jewish experience of 1096 not only shines a light on the economic and political gears at work in Latin Christendom, but also the religious ones. Early on, I mentioned how the use of to'im, the errant ones, meaning people who are aimlessly wandering, was a direct response to the Christian label, peregrini, or pilgrim. And there were other ways in which the Jews of Western Europe showed that they were highly aware of what was going on in their neighborhood churches. They get all the details of the expedition right, for example. They know it started at Claremont and that it was meant to end at Jerusalem. However, notice that in accounts such as those of Mites Anonymous, there is absolutely no mention of Alexios Komnenos, or even the Seljuk Turks, really. Mites doesn't even directly mention Muslims at all. However, the Solomon Bar Simpson Chronicle I quoted last time does. It says the Crusaders are going to fight barbarians, Ishmaelites, by which he means Muslims. In contrast to the Latin sources, Mites Anonymous, who's getting his info straight from the crusading horde, says they are heading east to kill and subjugate anyone who doesn't believe in the crucified one. That, of course, includes Jews. Mites also knows that the Christians believe this slaughter will provide them with remission of their sins. There's no way Mites isn't getting this straight from the Christians, because this sort of remission of sins is completely alien to Judaism. However, as much as they seemed on the outside of Latin Christendom, the Ashkenazim were a part of these communities, and as much as they were victims of the religious upheaval taking place in the 1090s, it seems that their own religious traditions participated in similar mutations. To quote Robert Chazen once more, These Rhineland Jews were of course fully aware of the exalted goals of the Crusaders, which can be discerned behind the scornful distortions of the Hebrew sources. They were cognizant of the frenzy that had gripped their neighbors, and of the certainty in crusader ranks of the highest rewards for commitment to the great enterprise. In many senses, Jewish behavior during the limited but violent persecutions of 1096 constituted a counter-crusade, a militant Jewish response to the aggression of Christendom. Like their Christian neighbors, the Jews felt themselves caught up in a struggle of cosmic proportions. Like their neighbors, they felt a responsibility to exhibit the highest possible devotion to their cause. Like their neighbors, they were eager to make the profoundest sacrifice possible, in some instances expanding the dictates of Jewish law and exceeding the precedents of the past. Like their neighbors, they were certain of eternal celestial reward for their heroism. In other words, the Jews show much of the same religious frenzy that swept European society at the end of the 11th century, when, in certain limited quarters, this general frenzy degenerated into anti-Jewish violence the Jews under attack responded with much the same militance and readiness for self-sacrifice, out of which the crusading movement had been spawned. To be sure, the attacks on the Jews engendered by the First Crusade aroused violent Jewish antipathy to Christianity in general and to the Crusade in particular. For these Jews, Jewish and Christian exhilarations were poles apart, one devoted to the eternal and true God and the other frittered away on vanity and emptiness. These Jews would never have seen themselves as inspired by a general wave of religious zeal that had aroused both Christians and Jews alike. There is therefore no conscious suggestion of such influences in the sources of the period. 
Nonetheless, the modern historian is permitted to suggest that a broad zeitgeist existed, which had profound impact in opposing camps. Indeed, the sense of a broad zeitgeist exerting influence upon Rhineland Jewry of 1096 extends beyond the immediate circumstances of the First Crusade. Both the Christian Crusaders and the Jewish Counter-Crusaders were part of a civilization caught up in dramatic new creativity. A number of features characterize the new civilization of the late 11th and 12th century. One of the most striking is the imaginative reinterpretation of older codes of religious behavior and symbol systems. Static ideals were transformed into something more active and penetrating. End quote. In episode 2.3, I quoted historian Thomas Asbridge as saying, 11th century Latin society was profoundly retrospective. It seems that this retrospection was shared to a large degree by the Jewish communities of the region. A noticeable aspect is allusion to biblical heroes of old in both Latin and Hebrew soldiers. Baljuk of Burgoy says that the Crusaders are greater than the Jacobites of old, while Mainz Anonymous consistently compares the Jews of the Worms and Mainz massacres to their ancestors, and also says that the sacrifice of the Rhineland martyrs was something that had never before been seen. In both traditions, Jewish and Christian, we can see that the religious icons of the day were outdoing their ancestors, even the mythical ones. Speaking of martyrdom, last time I made a comparison between the revolutionary egalitarianism of Peter the Hermit's movement and Jim Jones's People's Church. Well, the murder-suicides of Jewish families surrounded by hostile forces, including parents murdering their children, that sounds a lot like Jonestown in 1978. Rachel from the opening would have definitely drank the Kool-Aid. Fuck, sorry, uh, the Fresh-Aid. She would have drank the Fresh-Aid. Wait, was it Fresh-Aid or Flavor-Aid? I'm starting to understand why they went with Kool-Aid. It's much more memorable. Now this religious zeitgeist, as Chasm puts it, is clear in our sources, which, if you remove the religion-specific references, often sound interchangeable. Both Christians and Jews of the era shared fundamental similarities in the roles they assigned God and humanity in mundane events. In another one of his works, God, Humanity, and History, the Hebrew First Crusade Narratives, Robert Chazan compares the Gestafrank Quorum with the Hebrew Chronicles of the First Crusade. He points out various aspects where there are noticeable similarities. He says, quote, The Christians who are the protagonists of the Gesta and the Jews who occupy center stage in the Hebrew narratives were profoundly focused on that which distinguished them from one another, the nature of the God they worshipped, the demands their God made upon them, and the identity of the human community that God had singled out for special responsibility and blessing. A close look at these two immediate depictions of the First Crusade experience suggests, however, that beyond these obvious differences, there was, in fact, much that united the two hostile camps. Our analysis of the Gestafrancorum and the Hebrew narratives indicates that, differences notwithstanding, they share a common view, first, of God's limited role in what they both perceive as the remarkable developments of the late 1090s, and second, of the centrality of human will, commitment, and action in the drama of the First Crusade. Human will and commitment, as expressed in the Crusading Venture, could in immediate terms alter the course of history. And this is what the Christian narratives claim the Crusaders had done with their conquest of Jerusalem. Beyond the immediately tangible conquest lay the long-term implications of the unique heroism manifest in 1096. For the Jewish narrators, the immediate victory trumpeted by their Christian counterparts was ultimately devoid of meaning, 
it was Jewish heroism that would, at some point in the future, prove to be the decisive factor in a radical change that would be introduced by God himself. End quote. The experiences of the Rhineland Jewish communities are, I believe, essential to understanding the First Crusade. They're wrapped up in changes that were driving the monumental events of the era. Growth in terms of population and wealth, competition for supremacy between the German emperor and the reform papacy, a virulent sense of religion, and the unquestionable knowledge that behind every action was an omnipotent God, rewarding his chosen people and punishing sinners. The Hebrew Chronicles, much like the history of the Byzantine Roman princess, Anna Komnini, also give us an account of the Crusaders' motivations that's not exactly unbiased, but is at least differently biased. How easy it was for this pilgrimage to mutate and evolve. Perhaps now we can start seeing how this armed pilgrimage will eventually become conquest and migration. For the Jews of the Rhineland, though the events were traumatic, the effects were soon forgotten as the communities quickly recovered. It's important to view the attacks in 1096 as a very unfortunate sign of success. These were vibrant, successful communities, and they would grow to be the largest Jewish communities of the world. Even in the histories they wrote about these persecutions, they showed a sharp level of literary aplomb. The narrative crafted by Mainz Anonymous is harrowing and a testament to the state of culture in these communities. In Mainz Anonymous and the other Hebrew Chronicles, victims are transformed into martyrs and icons for future generations to draw inspiration from. One final time, I'll defer to a quote from Robert Chazan. Perhaps the broadest lesson that we take away from this look at the Rhineland tragedy slash triumph of 1096 is the sense of Jews inevitably caught up in the environments in which they lived and functioned. The 11th century Rhineland, 12th century Iberia, 16th century Poland, 20th century Israel and America. More precisely, the Rhineland Jews of 1096 show us in dramatic fashion Jews enmeshed in the vibrant new environment of Western Christendom, both as victims and as activists. This fateful Jewish immigration into an area of deep tension and rich creativity, perhaps inextricably bound up with one another, occasioned a number of major developments. On the one hand, the Jews moved into an arena in which they were fated to play a special role as purported enemy. On the other hand, these Jews and their descendants readily absorbed the vitality and creative energy of rapidly developing Western Christendom. The precedent-setting persecutions of 1096 thus show us far more than simply the eventual Western inclination to focus on Jews as quintessential outsiders and enemies. The unusual Jewish responses to the 1096 assaults provide important insight on Jewish absorption into restless, innovative, challenging Western Christendom. The Jewish heroism of 1096 shows us a small set of Jews who manifest the general vigor that was transforming the larger environment, a vigor that would make these Jews and their descendants significant contributors to the growth and development of that larger environment. The vital energy and the innovative capacities obvious in the Jewish responses to the crusading attacks would not always have to express themselves in such limited and life-threatening ways. They would be reflected in business initiative, continued pioneering in underdeveloped areas, and in a high level of cultural achievement. If the crusading assaults alert us to some of the negative features of evolving Western civilization, the Jewish responses introduce us to some of its dynamism and creative potential. End quote. Next time on History of the Uchmer, we continue the blood-soaked tale of the Peasants' Crusade, 
as first Walter Sansevoir, then Peter the Hermit, and finally Count Emigo himself, may his bones be ground to dust, arrive in Hungary. Up until now, the events of the First Crusade have been confined to the territory that had once been the Carolingian Empire, a diverse region, but one that shared many things in common. Upon entering Hungary, the First Crusaders were leaving behind the world they knew and entering a new one. They were in for one hell of a ride. <laughs> 